Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Anna Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Welcome back to another episode of Ohio Politics Explained, the We Will Fight to the End edition. This week, we're talking about new text messages that were released in the ongoing investigation into whether state officials were bribed and manipulated into bailing out two nuclear power plants, how Republicans and Democrats reacted to the raid of Donald Trump's home, concerning new numbers about the mental health of children, and whether Congressman Tim Ryan's drive down the middle will earn him a spot in the U.S. Senate. Joining me this week is reporter extraordinaire Laura Bischoff. Hey, Anna. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? A little sore, but I, uh, I threw out my back wrestling with my children in a sign that I'm getting old. Children are dangerous. They are. Our first topic this week is a series of text messages released by the Ohio Consumers Council. The messages deal with the ongoing investigation into whether former Speaker Larry Householder accepted and spent millions of dollars in bribe money from First Energy. And the text messages show two important things, in my opinion. First, they can confirm something we have sort of known in Ohio politics for a long time, and that's that Mike DeWine is state official number one, and John Husted is state official number two in a series of FBI documents. And the second thing it showed is just how hard the governor's office lobbied for these nuclear bailouts. And Laura, you read through all the messages. So what were your big takeaways? Well, it was interesting because the the text messages really kind of filled in some detail for those of us who follow this very closely. And back in 2019, state lawmakers were getting down to the nitty gritty about what was and wasn't going to be in House Bill 6. And First Energy and its former subsidiary, First Energy Solutions, now known as Energy Harbor, really wanted to get these subsidies, which is like extra money that four and a half million consumers were going to have to pay each month on their electric bill to stretch out for a whole decade. And it was um, it was looking like maybe it was going to be less than that. And anyway, they were fighting over it. And it, the text messages show that that John Houston was there, called you know, in their corner, um, fighting to the end to try to get it to ten years. I think it ended up being seven. So they didn't win on that front. But it really showed that um, they were leaning on the Dewine administration to make these things happen for them. Yeah, and I mean, ten years of extra payments on my electric bill for these companies, like that's a big deal. Like, cause it was going to be more than a billion dollars that they were going to collect, right? Yeah. Overall, it ended up being about a billion in subsidies. And, you know, there were other, other goodies in there for the utility industry overall, like keeping open the um, coal fired plants, one, mm-hmm. one that's in Indiana even. And then uh, what's called like decoupling language for first energy. It, it's this convoluted thing that basically gives them more money. And, you know, they repealed most of that. The coal subsidies are still uh, ongoing, though. 
Yeah. And so what is the real significance for folks who maybe haven't been following this as closely of DeWine being a state official one and Husted being state official two in all of these documents and deferred prosecution agreements? Yeah. So this, you know, the, the feds, when they file, um, when they file uh, records, reveal it in the public, they don't uh, use, they use pseudonyms. And right. They don't name names. They don't name names. They come up with like executive A, executive B, state official one, state official two. And a year ago when this deferred prosecution agreement came out, in which First Energy admitted that it bribed public officials, not state official one or state official two. Right. But anyway, so the, it came out and, and everybody was kind of like, well, who, who could this be? And DeWine and Houston are like, doesn't look like me. Don't know anything. <laughs> not us. And then these text messages, like I said, filled in the detail and it was clear. It confirmed some of the timeline stuff, some of the like more specifics that kind of made it clear these were one and two. Yeah. I mean, Chuck Jones and, and, and Mike Dowling, two top executives at First Energy at the time who were really pulling for House Bill 6, they, you know, they used very specific language like battle triage, like State official one, state official two had to p- perform battle triage to help them, you know, yeah. get something in the bill. And then the text message said, DeWine Houston had to perform battle triage. So that's how we were able to connect the dots. Yeah. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So our second topic is another situation involving federal investigators, but this time it's the FBI's raid of former President Donald Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. So on Monday night, Trump announced that federal agents were in his home and had even broken into his safe, apparently. But why they were there remains a bit of a mystery. Trump hasn't shared a copy of the warrant and the FBI hasn't said much, though it looks like it may be related to documents taken from the White House at the end of the Trump administration. But though we don't have a lot of details, uh, politicians, especially those in Ohio, have a lot of opinions. They have thoughts on this, for sure. It's interesting, the Ohio Republicans have really criticized um, the FBI, the Department of Justice, and they're demanding further details. They want to see the search warrant. They want to see what led federal officials to this. You know, I'd love to see the search warrant, and I'd love to see an inventory of all the stuff hauled away by the feds. Yeah, and you know, Governor Mike DeWine um, and Senator Rob Portman took a more nuanced position of they had concerns, but they wanted, they wanted more details. It was sort of a wait-and-see approach. Yeah, Rob Portman said, we don't want to jump to conclusions. Um, and Sherrod Brown said, you know, his his analysis was that it must be some pretty strong uh, information to get a warrant in this kind of like, you know, high-profile situation. Oh, yeah. I mean, the judge who issued it has to at least recognize the significance of raiding an ex-president's home for documents. It is absolutely historic. Yeah. And in case you were wondering, this is not related to the reason Trump was in court this week. He was in court in New York on completely separate charges. Yeah, that had to do with his the finances of his company. Yeah. So just in case you were wondering, those are two separate investigations that are going on in two separate states. But our third topic is Ohio's children. The annual Kids Count survey from the Annie E. Casey Foundation came out this week, and some of the numbers for both Ohio and the nation were troubling. So the first is the rate of depression and or anxiety climbed by 42 
42% in Ohio kids from 2016 to 2020. And, you know, that was also up for kids across the country, largely related to the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I was pretty surprised that it, one in eight Ohio kids experienced symptoms of anxiety or depression um, in 2020, which is when sort of the front end of, uh, of the pandemic. Yeah. And I think about it, you know, you they were isolated. They were sent home from school. They may have had a grandparent who passed away, a family member, known someone like it was a really stressful and like confusing time. And one of the interesting things was um, some of the researchers I spoke to were like, you know, on the positive side, it means that all those kids uh, had sought treatment. Right. Like those numbers, even though they're up, means that um, a doctor or somebody had diagnosed them or they had reported these symptoms. And, you know, getting more kids the help that they need is always a good thing. You know, one of the other shocking things in that in that report that you did was about how chronic absenteeism in which kids are missing school days rose by 45 percent from yeah. 2019 to 2021. And I know that earlier this year you did um, a deep dive into the Ohio uh, statistics and they were really, really Shocking. Yeah, one in four students missed at least 10% of school. Uh, one in 10 had missed more than 20%. And those numbers, um, as all the numbers uh, were, for children of color and children in Appalachia, those numbers were a lot higher. And that's one of the things that like we highlighted in these statistics is that, you know, when you look at um, foster care, say for children in Appalachia, it is way higher than children in the suburbs. When you look at teen pregnancy rates for black children, it is way higher than white suburban children. When you look at, you know, graduation rates, they're lower for these, like, it's just overall, there is a real disparity between how, say, the white children in the suburbs are doing versus like the rural children and the children of color. And also, like, let's just face it, if you're not in class, your chances of actually learning and keep learning to read and, and doing all the basics is um, is greatly diminished. I'd encourage people yeah. to go back and check out your um, your package on chronic absenteeism. So our fourth and final topic is Congressman Tim Ryan and the way he's running for U.S. Senate. So Ryan is trying to convince rural voters who supported Donald Trump to consider coming back into the Democratic fold. He says it's a campaign aimed at the, uh, quote, weary majority who are tired of politicians on the far right and the far left. Uh, J.D. Vance, his Republican opponent, says this is a false front. But the big question is, will it work? You know, it's interesting to see Tim Tim Ryan focused really on economic freedom and pocketbook issues and really steering clear of the culture wars that get people... He know, even cut super- that ad in the bar. He's like, I'm not your culture warrior. Right. Like, you know, he's steering clear of the ones that really get people lathered up. And... You know, it's sort of a signal that he's running to the center and yeah. he, he wants to um, to try to win some of the Democrats, obviously, and then the independent voters. And and some, you know, some of those tr- some of those crossover voters who went to Trump in recent years that um, that I think he's trying to appeal to them as well. The, you know, the it's a tight race. Um, the polls are showing that it's, it's pretty close. And Ryan seems to have a fundraising advantage at this point, although we'll see how the other third party groups come in. And uh, that's it's a it's it's one to watch for sure. Yeah. I mean, no Democrat has won statewide outside of Sherrod Brown in a long time since what, 2006 ish? Well, that's if you're not counting the Ohio Supreme Court because uh, three Democrats yeah, did win. That's Jennifer fair. Bruner won two years ago. But that's before they put party affiliation on those races. Yes. And that is a new thing for the Ohio Supreme Court this this uh, this fall. When you go to, the, go to the ballot and mark your ballot, you'll see that there's a D or an R after uh, candidates for Supreme Court and appellate court judgeships. 
And one more thing before you go. Dolly Parton came to Ohio this week to promote her Imagination Library. So for those of you who don't know, it's a totally free service through your local library that sends one book a month to your kids up until their fifth birthdays. So my daughter, her tune five in two weeks, actually just got her final book. And they're super wonderful. And DeWine hosted her at an event. And I don't know, I just thought it's a fun way to end on because like Dolly Parton is one of those people we were joking in like that people in politics can rarely agree on anything, but we can all agree that like the Imagination Library is kind of a universally good thing. Yeah, I mean Dolly Parton is uh, really a national treasure and she is uh, working 9 to 5 for, <laughs> for childhood liter- literacy. So Yeah, and it's really neat because I guess her own father ha- hadn't l- never learned how to read and that was something that had a profound impact on her life. So she kind of said this is her legacy. Like all of her music, all of her other work, like she said like in her final moments she'll remember the Imagination Library, and I thought that was really sweet. And honestly, the books are awesome. We got this one a couple months ago called Find Fergus about a bear who doesn't know how to play hide and seek, and it's adorable. So, like, the books are really good quality. Like, uh, we really enjoyed them. And isn't the last book that the kids receive before they go off to kindergarten is ready for kindergarten? I don't know. I'll have to look. It like just came and I'll admit that I don't know what it is, but it's been a lot of like great books and diversity from like different authors and different cultures. Like it's been really good. I've really loved it. So go Dolly. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered, check us out online at beaconjournal.com.